And so uh, what I want to do tonight is I, I want to I talk, teach, preach, just kind of share what's in my heart with you. Um, and uh, we're going to read from Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 9. It's not necessarily uh, necessary that you stand. Uh, I'm going to have a lot of scriptures, and uh, you'll be popping up all night if you have to stand for the reading. But I, I just, I just want to share this scripture because it, it's a familiar passage of scripture, but God kind of talked to me about this subject in a weird way. And, uh, and I'll explain that in a minute, but uh, I, I happen to be scrolling uh, across Facebook and ran into something, and I want to share it with you here in just a moment. Isaiah 55, 6 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Somebody say the unrighteous man his thoughts. God says, let the unrighteous man uh, forsake his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God is saying that he wants people to seek him, to forsake their way, their thoughts, because God is a forgiving God. How many of you are thankful for that? I'm thankful that God forgives us. So um, he says this, he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high uh, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so, uh, I, I want to speak to you for a few minutes tonight. I'll tell you what my, my title is here in just a moment. But I wonder if we could just open our hearts and pray. Even on a, on a scaled down Wednesday night, I believe God through His Word has something to say to us and can speak to us. Can we just bow our heads, close our eyes and pray, Lord... God, we come tonight with open hearts, Lord. We pray that your word would be like a surgeon's scalpel, Lord, that it would reach down inside of us, that it would talk to us, Lord, that it wouldn't just talk to us here in the room, but that it would go out on the internet and that it would speak to someone listening on a phone or in their house or in their home, God. We pray in the name of Jesus, God, that you would just anoint what we're doing here for your kingdom, for your purpose, and let it accomplish what you sent it to do in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. So in, in the law of, or, or in social sciences, there is a thing called the law of unintended consequences. And it refers to the observation that human policies intended for good often create corolla, corollary consequences that were never intended by those who enacted the policy in the first place. Uh, it's a fancy way of saying that People don't know what they're doing. <laughs> Amen. Anybody ever been working with somebody and say, whoa, 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 you don't know what you're doing there. Don't do that. Don't do that. And so there, there's this law of unintended consequences where often in trying to do good, we create things that we never saw coming. History is filled with such stories of people setting out to solve a problem only to create another one. And so, uh, I take you back to the sinking of the Titanic. It was soon after the sinking of the Titanic in 1915 that the government moved quickly to make sure that it would never happen again. I love what Ronald Reagan said. He said, the scariest words you'll ever hear is, we're from the government and we're here to help. <laughs> and so the government swoops in, they're going to fix this problem because 
this national and worldwide tragedy that lives in infamy even today. The Titanic sunk and, and lost over 1,500 lives because there were not enough lifeboats. And so the government moved quickly to make sure it wasn't going to happen again. The U.S. Senate conducted investigations concluding that if there had been a sufficient number of lifeboats available, that the loss of life would have been greatly reduced. So soon after, a law was passed that ships over 100 tons must carry enough lifeboats for every single person aboard. And that day, I'm sure every one of those senators went home feeling pretty good. We've whipped it. We've solved the problem. The government has fixed the issue. Tragically, that was not the case, because enter the SS Eastland just a few months later. It was a cumbersome tanker to begin with, but with the added weight of these now government-mandated lifeboats, just 20 or 30 yards from its mooring as it began to take its trip into the waters, the ship began to topple and a roll in the water and it sank in 20 feet of water just a few feet away from its mooring in the Chicago Bay. That day, several of them uh, who were on the top of the ship were able to, to kind of walk around the ship as it slowly turned and literally step off the ship back onto the dock. But over 800 people who were below deck were trapped and tragically died just a few weeks after the Titanic because of the law of unintended consequences. They didn't intend to kill 800 people. But in trying to fix the problem, the Senate and others caused the very thing that they were trying to avoid. It was unintended. They were just trying to help. They were just trying to do what they thought was right. And perhaps, if we're honest, we've all felt that way at one time or another, we set out with the best intentions only to find that we have created problems that we couldn't even see coming. Angles that we never considered. Things that we never thought would unfold. Maybe it was something that you said, well-intentioned advice to a friend that turned out badly. And next time that'll make you think, you know, like, like if you had a good friend who said invest in crypto a few months ago. I'm just picking on Brother Jay. <laughs> the law of unintended consequences. There's, there's just no way to consider all the angles of everything that will unfold in life. And, and sometimes we have the best intentions only to find that we have created these unintended consequences. And the point is clear that intentions are not always enough to make sure that we accomplish what we're trying to do. Can I get an amen? Amen. Intentions aren't always good enough to make sure that we don't cause some corollary disaster because there are gaps in our understanding that we cannot account for. There are parts to the equation of life that we cannot possibly parse or see coming. There are angles that we never consider. And so often we are reacting and responding to things in the moment. Not considering the long-term impact of those things or the unintended consequences of our actions and of our thoughts. I think that if anything, the last year and a half can prove that to us. Amen? 
And so it's the law of unintended consequences. And, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to tell you my title. My title is Never Paint Turtles. I've was, I was been excited all day to see that look. Because <laughs> I knew when I shared my title, people would be like, now wait a minute. We came out here all the way on a Wednesday night. <laughs> in the middle of a pandemic. In the middle of the heat of summer. To talk about turtles? Never paint turtles. Now my prayer is that you will remember this. Because it stuck with me when I read it. But listen. A few days ago, I came across a post on Facebook that, you know how you do, you scroll through, and at first I looked at it, and I, I kind of gave it the look y'all just gave me, and said, this person's make a big deal out of nothing. Because it was posted by an animal lover with a stern rebuke for two little girls in central Mississippi who had the audacity to paint a wild turtle shell. And I thought, well... You know, Karen's done got a hold of them because she's going to speak to somebody's manager. She's going to make a post on the Internet, make a big deal about two little girls that are just trying to be nice, trying to have a good time, trying to spend time in the great outdoors in summertime. Something we should celebrate. And along comes Karen to set them straight for how they're wrong, because we all know the Internet's got somebody to always tell you that everything you do is wrong. And so that's kind of how I was reading it. it, it and so um, it turns out. That little Kaylee and Christy Lynn caught the attention of this internet Karen when they caught a turtle and decided to add their own artistic flair. They painted the helpless turtle, signed their names on its back as if it were a personal Picasso, and then turned it loose back into the wild. There are at least three people that did not know that painting turtles was a bad idea before this unfortunate event. And their names are Kaylee, Christy Lynn, and me. I had no idea that it was a big deal to paint a turtle. Let the kids be kids. Let them enjoy life. That sounds like innocent fun. Let them paint the turtle. But it turns out that painting turtles creates some unintended consequences that these two elementary age girls could not have foreseen. You see, these two girls had set out to beautify their little turtle friend that they had found along the way. And they were determined to give it some glam, you know. Dress it up a little. Give it a little pizzazz, a little pow. And so they pulled out their art brushes and did their finest work. And really, it was pretty good work. And so uh, they gave him some pizzazz and let him scurry back to his little turtle friends who I'm sure they imagined would be totally jealous of his newly installed art. And they meant no harm. But it turns out that paint can be incredibly harmful to turtles. Because what these little girls didn't realize was that many paints are toxic and can seep into the bodies and the bloodstream through the turtle shell. And it can get down on the inside of them and it can make them incredibly sick so that they might not survive. Paint also does this, it takes away their natural camouflage and removes the protection that it provides. And so when you release a painted turtle back into the wild, that turtle has now got a target on its back quite literally. 
Because any alligator or any kind of a, a beast that wants to eat a turtle, maybe even a Cajun, is going to have an easier time seeing the turtle's shell and targeting the turtle because of the paint on its back. And so a painted turtle is highly visible and susceptible to predation. Turtle shells are also not just an accessory. They're not just a home for the turtle, but they absorb UV rays through which the shell metabolizes uh, into vitamin D3. And without vitamin D3, turtles cannot absorb calcium. And through time, their bones will grow weak so that they cannot survive the habitat that they were created to live in. As I read the post, I decided to research and I found out that the Department of uh, Wildlife in Florida agrees. Because a few years ago they put out a plea to their citizens asking them, saying this, please do not paint the turtles. Please don't paint the turtles. Apparently it had become a real problem across the state as many people were catching and painting these turtles. And they said this, tortoises and turtles don't need touch-ups. You can paint your house, a piece of furniture, a canvas, even your own fingernails or toenails, but you should never paint the shell of a turtle or a gopher tortoise. And the state, uh, the state agency set out to set the record straight that turtles do not need touch-ups. They were created and designed to survive just as they are. And if you'll just let them alone, they'll do just fine. If you'll just leave them be, they're perfectly designed for the habitat that they were created to live in. And so listen to me. In trying to add, these errant young artists were actually taking away. Their best intentions didn't matter. The unintended outcome of their actions as innocent as they were, could turn out to be disastrous for the very thing that they were trying to help. It turns out the internet tur turtle police were right because turtles really don't need touch-ups. And, and, and turtles really don't need artistic installations on their back. Why? Because it's perfectly suited to survive in its habitat as is. You see, a turtle did not become a turtle on its own, but it has a creator who is infinitely wise. He knew what turtles were up against. And so he created and designed them so that they could survive and thrive right where he placed them. And so after reading the post, I'll, I'll tell you what hooked me into this. Is the last line of the post said, God made turtles as amazing as they can be already. God does not need your help. And I thought, aha, <laughs> we should never paint. After reading, I was convinced and I was convicted. Not because I'm a turtle painter, not because I sneak around at night with my art set looking for innocent turtles to, to wreck their lives. That's, that's not why I felt convicted and convinced. But let me tell you, it's because uh, it seems to dis define the struggle of our modern times. Somehow, in our humanity, we believe that we have something to add to what God has designed, that we have some better way or some unaddressed angle at life that is better or more colorful than what God intended and designed. And so we live in a day and age where God's design is really not held in high regard by a lot of people. 
self-expression and self-definition gets more attention than self-discipline and spiritual submission. And so even in Christianity, the precepts of Scripture are often painted over by cultural opinions and thought processes that really cannot comprehend or conceive why God said it the way He said it. Somebody say, never paint turtles. Never paint a turtle. Because it seems that what we do in this modern age, and and I'm saying it we as we, in this church and we corporately across Christianity, what we often do is we run every line and story of Scripture through the fil- filter of what taste, uh, uh, what fits our taste and our flair. And listen, there are as many churches and types of doctrines and places that you can find to fit your flair. To come alongside you and paint the most beautiful panorama you've ever seen. On the turtle's back. And, and, and it seems in our culture what happens often is we'll read something that doesn't sit well with us in Scripture. And so we will immediately kick into the function of finding some cultural escape from it or some way out of it or some way that we're misinterpreting or misunderstanding that. And, and it seems like what we do oftentimes is we somehow twist and, 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 and cajole and work our way back to where it really fits and looks like what we wanted it to in the first place. We pop out our art brush and we say, I know just what this little turtle needs. It needs a little red and a little blue and a little bit of color. And so we live in this age where sometimes even with the best of intentions, in a sincere effort to make God and church a little more acceptable to the culture we're trying to reach, people will reach into their bag of paint and start applying color. And so listen to what I'm trying to talk to you tonight about. When we lessen our view of God's design, we create unintended consequences. When we lessen our view of God's word, we create these unintended consequences. We must hold God's word in high regard. If we're really going to help people, if we're really going to give people hope, we cannot do it based on how we feel and what we think because we didn't design the turtle. We didn't create it. We, we are not the author and the finisher. The Bible say, does not say In Hebrews, looking in the mirror, the author and the finisher of your faith. It says looking unto Jesus. And so when we become a Christian, what we're really doing is we're saying, Lord, you understand and you know the path of life that I need to take. That's what Christianity is. Christianity is not going to church on Sunday and hollering, I believe. But Christianity is saying, Lord, I'm going to trust that my judgment is in error, that that there's things that I don't understand, things that maybe I can't explain, there are angles that maybe I don't see, and so God, my only hope in this life is to decrease my opinion and elevate your word. We need to get back to a high view of scripture as Christians, because when we lessen our view of God's design and we misunderstand it, what we do When we paint over it, 
is we create these unintended consequences. I, I love the parallels in this because, listen, a church with a low view of Scripture and a Christian with a low view of Scripture, it's like painting a target on your back. We live in the middle of a spiritual warfare. And, and there are predators out there. There are spirits that are out there for your family. There are, there are spirits that are working against your faith and your usefulness for the kingdom. There, there is an enemy that is organized against what God would have you to become. What God has designed you, your family, your church to be. And, and so, hear me out. When we lessen our view of the design of the word... When we lessen our view of God's thoughts and we begin to elevate our thoughts, we, we paint a target on our back. Because what will we say when we are tempted? What will we say? Jesus, when he was tempted, what did he say? He said, it is, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Listen, if Jesus couldn't overcome temptation without the word, who do we think we are? Listen, Christian, I pray, I hope young Christians are watching. Doctrine doesn't come from TikTok. It doesn't come from Instagram. It doesn't come from Facebook. The Bible says that God inspired and breathed words into about 40 authors, into 66 books that are progressively, page by page, revealing the will of God to us. And listen, sometimes it's hard to understand what the will of God is. Sometimes it's difficult to discern even what the Bible is saying. I get that because I study the Bible. And sometimes some really good sermons come out of me saying, I don't know what this means. I have no idea. So God, you're going to have to show me. I get it. It's often difficult, but what, what we fail to realize is that Jesus and, and, the, and the scripture is clear that when we seek the Lord, we can find him. And, and we cannot find answers from one that we are not willing to listen to. And so the path of faith isn't, I'm going to read you 17 scriptures you're going to believe and your life is going to be changed. That's not it. There's a drawing of the Spirit, and you have to respond to the Word of God. And what that means is you have to, for a moment, consider things that are not according to your worldview, that don't line up with the way that you've been living, and they're going to run afoul of the value system that maybe even mom and dad put in you and other people put in you. But that is the nature of what God's Word was designed to do. And so... When, when, we, when we lessen our view of God's word, we're more susceptible to predators. As Christians, our decisions, our lifestyles, our, our patterns, our thoughts, our habits, they must, not, they must not supersede the word of God. They must flow first through the filter of what, do, what does God think about this? What does God say about this? Not, not how do I feel, not what did I see somebody make a clever point. On the internet, no. But what does God's word really say about that? What does God's re word really say? See, we're more susceptible to predation when we lessen our view of the word of God. Next, you know what the other thing is? I, I love this. It said that when they painted the turtle, that the toxins from the paint, they started on the outside, but they seep into the inside and get into the bloodstream. And listen, when, when we 
when we elevate things over God and opinions and thoughts and, and we form our worldview from, from things other than the scripture. I'm not saying you can't listen to anything else, but what I'm saying is when you diminish the voice of God down to the level of humanity and, and you make it a part of the pantheon of human thinking and it's just one more way of looking at things, let me tell you what we do is we open up our heart and our spirit and our bloodstream to all sorts of things that God never intended to be there. Because the Bible says it's not the things that are from without that defile a man. It's when they get on the inside. It's the things that flow out from a man that defile him. For out of the heart flows adultery and, and fornication and lasciviousness and all of these things and lying and theft. That all comes from the heart first. And so when we diminish the word of God and start living according to our own way and our own flair and our own thinking... Stuff gets on the inside that never should have been there. And what we don't realize is, as Christians, we grow spiritually sick. And listen, the turtle may not die tomorrow, but its ticket's already punched. It's weakened over and over again through time as the toxins flow through the inside of it. This is why in Proverbs it says, with all diligence, guard the heart, for out of it are the issues of life. And, and listen, here's another thing. Is it blocks out the UV rays. It, it cuts off the turtle. When you paint a turtle, it cuts it off from the source that strengthens it on the inside. So now it's sick. It's got a target on its back. And through time, it gradually grows weaker as calcium is not able to reach and, and, and strengthen its bones. And so it becomes weak and brittle and unable to stand up to the environment that it was created to thrive in. And so it will never be what it was designed to be again. Simply because somebody thought they could add to God's design. Proverbs 21.2 says it this way. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. But the Lord weighs the heart. What he's really saying here is he's saying you can't trust you. You can't trust you. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Can I get an amen from the woman, women in here? <laughs> That's an easy way to get an amen in church. Every way of a man, Jocelyn got mad at me the other day because uh, I was following the GPS. We went down to Waco uh, when we canceled church the weekend. And I was supposed to be getting, uh, on, I thought I was supposed to be getting on a highway, but the map said don't get on the highway. So I was halfway on the highway. Well, I got off. And she said, what are you doing? So I'm following the map. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. She's like, no, you're not. You're swerving all over the place. I said, she said, you, all, you think you're always right. Yeah, I do. I got scriptural reason for it. The Bible said I was going to think that I was right. But listen, the Lord weighs the heart. The Lord weighs the heart. And what he's saying is you can't trust you because the Bible reveals that the heart is deceitfully wicked. Amen? The heart is deceitfully wicked and who can know it? Sometimes we think we know why we're doing something, but, but we're really not even in touch with why we do what we do. And if you've ever struggled in bondage and sin and wanted out, and you, then you have indeed asked yourself, God, why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep going there? Why do I keep allowing my mind and my spirit to wander in that direction? God, why? We don't even know. And so what kind of a compass is it for you to follow your heart when you don't even know why you do what you do. He says, every way of a man is right, but the Lord weighs the heart. You see, you can't leave matters of life in, in your own hands. Because you'll mess it up every time. Every time you'll mess it up. 
And listen to what he continues to say in verse 3. In Proverbs 21, 3 he says, To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Do you, do you know what that's saying? Is what it's saying is, in the Old Testament, the only way to get right with God was to do sacrifice. And what it's saying is, God would rather you listen to him now than have to repent to him later. He would rather you do righteousness and justice now than have to come back with a dead cow because you couldn't get it straight. Because you didn't want to listen to the way that God wanted you to do it. Because you had plans and dreams and visions and strategies and ways of doing your own thing. So, it's incredible to me how the Bible is hyperlinked. I love this about the Bible because it's almost a direct quote from the book of 1 Samuel. And it's a direct reference to the era of Saul, King Saul. How many of you remember King Saul? We got, this is wins in that Bible crowd. I can, I can bring up just about any Bible story here. King Saul. We know that the kingdom was stripped from him because Saul, he, he, had, he had just lost, or, or Jonathan had won a, a small skirmish and, and stirred up the enemy. And then the Bible says Israel got really scared and they started hiding in the caves in the rocks. And, and Saul is at Gilgal and he's got, he's got a few hundred men with him. And he's waiting seven days for uh, Samuel the prophet to show up so they can make a sacrifice. And he knows that it's not his job to make the sacrifice, but Samuel's coming. And Samuel doesn't show up at exactly the time that he thought that he was supposed to. So Saul says, we need the favor of God. The people are scattering. The people are scattering. If you've ever been in, involved in a church service and running a church service, sometimes you feel this way. You're like, oh no, what are we going to do? <laughs> Everybody's leaving. <laughs> when we had baptism Sunday, we strategized. Now, y'all don't tell the Sunday folks this. But we strategize, how can we get people not to leave? Because this is the biggest thing going is when we got people being baptized. And we said, you know what, we're going to put baptism right here. And you know what happened is everybody celebrated and we had an awesome time, didn't we? But we were strategizing, Lord, the people are going to scatter. What are we going to do? Luckily, we didn't, you know, defy God's law or anything. But that's what Saul did. Saul said, you know what, if Samuel can't get here on time, if he don't going to show up when he said he was going to show up, I've got a knife, and I've got a fire, and I'll make this sacrifice. We need the favor of God. So the Bible says that's exactly what he does. And when he shows up, uh, Samuel walks up, and he asks him, what is he doing? He said, well, I needed the favor of the Lord. This is just a precursor. And Samuel tells Saul, he says, this day, because you're not a man after God's heart. He said this, because you're not a man after God's heart, God has stripped the kingdom from you, and he's going to give it to one of the princes of the land. Because you're not a man after God's own heart. Y'all remember who the man after God's own heart is, right? It's David. And God tells Samuel, or, or Saul, through Samuel at this moment in time, because he took it upon himself to change the plan, to change the word, to change what God had designed, that God says, you're not a man after my own heart. In other words, you don't, rever you don't really reverence me. You don't really honor me. You really don't believe that I am who I say I am, or you would not go and change what I have spoken. And so, just a couple chapters later, in 1 Samuel 15, the Bible tells, uh, tells us that Saul is going to fight the Amalekites. And Samuel tells Saul, God has spoken that the Amalekites are judged, and you are to kill all of the Amalekites, every one of them, and all of their sheep, and all of the cattle, and everything. Just kill it all, because God is done with this enemy uh, bothering his children. And so, once again, 
Samuel arrives. And guess what? The Bible said that Saul kept many of the sheep and many of the oxen. He killed most of them. I mean, like 99%. 99%. But, but he kept King Agag alive. And he kept all the, the sheep and the oxen. And, and when Samuel arrives, Sister Donna, you know what shocked me when I was reading this today? This is what Saul says. He's proud. He said, hey, Samuel, I have obeyed the Lord. And Samuel said, what? That's just my imagination. What are you talking about, Willis? <laughs> what? You have obeyed the Lord? Then what? He said, why do I hear the lowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep? You didn't obey God. And Saul says, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on, preacher. Hold on, prophet. We saved those so we could sacrifice them to God. In other words, God, we know how you set things up, but we'll take it from here. We got it. We know that you're holy and reverenced and, and a mighty God to be feared, but like, we got ideas too. And so the Bible tells us that Samuel speaks up to him. And he says, does the Lord desire the fat of ox or the fat of rams? Does, is that what he desires? Because obedience is better than sacrifice. In other words, he said, God would rather you reverence him than, than to do what you want and then say, well, I did it with good intentions. I did it intending to glorify God in some way. I did it with the best heart behind it. And I've come to tell you, your intentions don't always matter. It doesn't always matter. And so, listen to what Saul said to Samuel. He said, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. When, when it really got down to it, Saul admitted that he had let something else become bigger than what God had spoken in his life. When he really got honest, I mean, this is after all the prophetic proclamations, the kingdom is stripped from him, he knows it's the end. And you know, here's the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, is a few, just a, a, a few chapters later, the Bible says an Amalekite, which there shouldn't have been any Amalekites, is the one that kills King Saul. And let me just slip this in, because it's Wednesday night and we got a little time. What you don't kill will eventually kill you. And God tells him to kill them all, but he, he's got his own way of doing things. And it's all, every time you read Saul, it's all with the best of intentions, the purest of heart. I just thought in my heart, God, that you would like it, that if I sacrifice these thousand bulls, then just killing them and leaving them by the road. I really thought, God, that you would understand where I was coming from. I really thought, God, that you would see that I needed your favor and so... You know, Samuel was running late, and I, I valued your favor so much that I just took it upon myself to do it my way. But listen, God's not looking for a man after his own heart. He's looking for a man after God's own heart. And, and so Saul, he he's just finally comes to the point where he admits that, well, I, I feared the people. I was afraid of what they would say. And so I obeyed their voice. Isn't this just a picture of where our culture is at and where many Christians are at today? Is people who 15 years ago were okay to preach on social issues are now scared to death. I don't want to offend anybody. Listen, if it's written in scripture, they're going to be offended when they get to the judgment seat. Hey, <laughs> might as well start now. <laughs> you know, might as well start now. And, and I'm not advocating that we just be ugly and, and we be, you know, Westboro Baptists. But, but at some point, 
we have got to elevate the word of God and say, you know what? You know what I tell my kids a lot, and I, I think they look at me like I'm speaking Chinese, is, is we're not living like they're living. We're trying to live through this. This is up over us. And so what I think and what you think doesn't really matter. What does God think about it? Because we don't need to do it Rory Chance's way. And we, we don't need to do it Jay Paul's way. We need to find out what is the way of the Lord. Because only if I do it that way, only then can I find the blessing and the life that I'm really designed to have. And that God wants me to have. And so, how many of you ever, have ever heard this? Is it really a big deal? Is it really a big deal? Is it really a big deal? Do you think God really cares? My son said that to me today. I was getting after him about this. He said, Dad, is that really a big deal? You think God cares? I said, yes, I do. Or I would not be saying it to you. <laughs> I wouldn't waste your time and mine if I thought God didn't care. But we hear that. I've said that. Well, I just needed the favor of God, so I did what I thought was right. And, and so Saul, his problem was this, is that he held a low view of Scripture. He, he held a low view of the Word of God. It was subject to his own interpretation, and he felt that he could ignore it when it was convenient to ignore it. And this is where a lot of Christians are at. And they don't call it ignoring it, but they've got uh, some, some little one-liner explanations for how they can get out of something that they can see clearly in the Scripture. Is it all right if we get real tonight? I mean, there's just a few of us here, but, but I think it's okay to be real and say that there's a lot of Christians that have a low view of Scripture because the lower the view of Scripture, the weaker and the more susceptible we are to the shifting sands of human opinion. Having a low view of Scripture means this, that we base our understanding on some other method of determining truth that supersedes Scripture and in some cases dismisses it all together. And so the question that you have to ask yourself as a Christian is, did God breathe this out? Did he breathe it out? Did God really inspire the Bible? Did Jesus really go to the cross? Did Jesus really come out of the grave? Because if those things are true, that changes where I stand in the scope of eternity. It doesn't depend on me then. It depends on him. And so a low view of scripture is that, that when other things and ideas and places either come into alignment and importance in our life with where we view scripture or supersedes it. It stands in contrast with a high view of scripture. Let me tell you what a high view of scripture is. It's when, uh, when we speak of the high view of scripture, it's that God has unveiled himself through the pages of scripture and culminated his revelation of truth in his son Jesus Christ. That revelation is encapsulated in 66 books that portray God's story as a unified whole. It's not of a bunch of opinions of different men, but it is the Spirit of God weaving His story through humanity and through these authors. Having a high view of scriptures means that we assign scripture as the final authority of faith and practice. It is recognizing that God has spoken through His Word. And so when I read it, I read it with the intent of understanding what each author is striving to convey and how each piece fits in with the whole of Scripture. See, when we approach Scripture from the standpoint of personal preference, we have a low view of Scripture. It doesn't matter that much. But when we approach Scripture from the standpoint of whether culture will accept it, we have a low view of Scripture, but when you elevate 
human thinking and human ways over God's ways. I want to tell you there are unintended spiritual consequences to that. And even the best intentioned person who's trying to navigate these tumultuous waters and culture. Let me tell you something. God, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And his ways are higher than our ways. And so the question that we have to settle in our hearts as Christianity as a whole is do we really believe that this is the word of God? Because if I really do, then I really have to consider my life in the light of it. If I really do, then it's going to have to change some things about me, even when it doesn't feel good and it's not comfortable. Or I can just paint a turtle and let it be what it's going to be. And there's a lot of Christians who, who struggle with a low view of Scripture. I don't, I don't mean to say that they would argue with you that the Bible's not important. It's just a matter of what happens when it pricks you. <laughs> right? What happens when it cuts you? What happens when it runs afoul of what you thought and what, what you planned? You know, there's some people, if Jesus showed up with a Bible in his hand, he still couldn't convince you of some stuff in the Bible. <laughs> he just couldn't. You know why I believe that? Because that's exactly what happened. <laughs> All through the book of Luke, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees. In Luke 19, they ask him, by what authority do you do all this? He came in and turned over the tables. Uh, at, you know, he, he had done all sorts of miracles, raised Lazarus from the dead, turns over the tables in the temple. They said, by what authority do you do this? You see, this is where it comes to, is, is it's the authority issue. They were fine with Jesus as long as he was healing a blind eye here or there and doing this and that, you know, raising a, uh, an occasional dead guy. That kind of got under their skin a little bit, no pun intended, but... But ultimately, they, they said, by what authority do you do this? Because for the Pharisees, they, listen, they had a high view of Scripture, but they had a low view of God. Because over the years, what they had done is they took the Holy Word of God and they added to His commandments, what is it? Someone knows the number. I can't remember off the top of my head. It wasn't, I think it's 600 or 792 or something like that, traditions that they added on top of the scripture, they had a high view of scripture, but they had a low view of God, because when God showed up in flesh, the Bible says he came into his own, and his own received him not, why, because they had become religious and traditious, tra uh, tradition, and, and truth could not even prevail, because really what they did, is they took the parts of scripture they really, 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 really liked, and they elevated that. But they took the parts of scripture they really, really didn't like or didn't understand or couldn't comprehend. And they pulled them way down here. And so I'm not just preaching about these liberal crazies. I'm preaching about God-fearing people that go to church Sunday after Sunday. We, we've got to keep a high view of the authority of God in our life. Amen? So over and over, uh, we see the unintended consequences of human thinking in scripture. I'm almost done. When people reason away the instruction of God. We see it in Israel when they wonder for 40 years because God said go in. And they said, we're scared. We don't want to. So he says, you're stuck. I preached about that a few weeks ago. I won't re-preach it. They were stuck for 40 years. They didn't intend to. They were just afraid for their lives. They just chose fear over faith. And so they were stuck. Moses missed entering the promise because God told him to speak to a rock. And he was mad at the people who had no faith. He was on God's side. And he struck the rock rather than speaking to it. 
And so God tells Moses, you don't get to go into the promised land. Did Moses intend that? No. He probably felt righteously indignant towards all of these people and in his striking of the rock. But the truth is, it's not what God desired. Israel created unintended consequences. The Bible said when, uh, when they, they worshipped an idol and when they complained and murmured that God sent serpents among them as judgment. And when, when they begged God for uh, reprieve, he, he had Moses create this brazen serpent in the wilderness. And he raised the serpent up. And when they looked upon the serpent, they were healed. It was created, designed by God for that moment in time to get them through it was an allusion to the cross of Calvary where if I be lifted up, I'll draw a man unto me. It, 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 was, it had its place, okay? It had its place. But Israel takes it and they worship it for generations to come till God has to send a prophet to pull it out of the temple and break it in half and call it Nehushtan. That word in Hebrew simply means this. It's just a piece of brass. We're trying to slap paint on something. And it wasn't ever designed, it could never save them again because that's not what it was designed to do. And so, let me say this, what God desires is what God designed. That's what he really desires. Why? Because his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. And, and, and I'm not preaching this to be legalistic and tell you, go look at every scripture and try to obey every one of them perfectly. But what I'm telling you is that God will speak to you. He will convict you. He will lead you by his spirit. And you have to be willing to run it through the filter of what is pleasing God. Not not what do I want, what do I think. Not what does culture say about it. Not what does friends and family think. If you've got to be the bad guy and stand alone, be the bad guy and stand alone. But dear God, don't paint a turtle. Because you might be painting a a target on your own back. See, the overwhelming testimony of Scripture indicates that God's word is so much more than religious dogma. Hear me out in these last few minutes. I'm going to shine the light. We've talked about all the depressing stuff that happens when you get God's word out of its rightful place. But listen to this. When God speaks, he is communicating his design. And we have 66 books of God doing just that. He's communicating his design, his will. His plan towards man. And his design is revealing a path to life. Deviating from the design doesn't bring destruction because God is choosy or judgy and just doesn't like some things. It brings destruction, hopelessness, hurt, pain, fear, shame, and so much more because sin is the inferior idea. You see, what people do is they think, you know what will make me happy? is a knock back this six pack. That'll make me happy. But drunkenness is an inferior idea. Because when it's over, you know, the Bible says sin feels good for a little bit. For a season. It feels all right. But after that, it leaves an empty, hollow place that has to be filled again. And it's the same story, whether it's telling a lie to get out of a situation, whether it's committing adultery, is it promises all of this stuff as if it's your Savior. But it's really not. It's really just an inferior idea. And so God, when he reveals what sin is, he's trying to show us that is the inferior way of living. But if you listen to my words and listen to what I'm speaking and saying, you'll find the path to life. Simply a misguided plan to get you where you really want to be. 
Sin is a recipe for spiritual predation. It's a sure path to a toxic heart and failing strength. Sin and self-directed living promises very much but delivers very little. Why? Because it ultimately will topple just like that ship in the water because it was not designed for that kind of use. That's not what life was designed for. And so to put it simply, a painted turtle can never reach the potential of his design. I want to come to a close here in just a second, but I want to I leave you with this. The key, there, there is a key to divinely directed outcomes. How many of you in this room would say, I want God to direct my outcome? I think it's I know, I know almost, I think I know all of you. I, I'm, I'd be surprised if, if there was even a single person in the room that didn't feel that way. But sometimes it feels like life isn't going the way that God intended. But there is a key that scripture gives us to having a divinely directed outcome. I want God's hand on my outcome. Now I look at life sometimes, I don't understand how all the pieces will fit together. I don't understand how I'll get there. I don't understand how God's going to make it all happen. How many of you can relate? Don't, don't understand the things that we pray for. I know some of you pray for, for kids that have wandered from faith. It, there, there's all sorts of situations that we cannot understand, but there is a key to divinely directed outcome. A key to making sure that God's hand is on your life. And it's in Proverbs 3. It reads like an instructional, instruction manual for those who desire to live for God. And it's written through the personified voice of wisdom. It's as if wisdom is speaking as a father would instruct a son. How many of you ever had your dad put his arm around you and maybe, maybe give you some advice? That, that's the scene that wisdom is giving. It's giving the plan for life. It gives us a roadmap to this blessed life. It's filled with promises that arise out of living in obedience and reverence for God's design. And wisdom unveils in these few short verses, 35 verses, all the ingredients necessary to live a long and peaceful life. How many of you want that? I want a long and peaceful life. Amen. I want to go right before somebody else has to change me. Amen. That's the goal. I want to live a long and peaceful life. But it tells us how to do that. It tells us how to find favor and good success with God and man. How many of you want that? I, I want that. It tells us how to live a divinely directed life. To find healing and reviving in the midst of pain and suffering of life. It teaches us the spiritual key. Listen to this. To financial blessing. Anybody want that? It's okay to want that. And so within these verses there is this treasure trove of blessings of God. And, and the instructions of how to attain them. And wisdom starts showing us how they are available and accessible. Listen to this. To anyone who will listen. To anyone who will listen. Blessing, it, it, it does not discriminate. Anybody who will listen can have it. Long life. Favor, good success with God and man. Divinely directed outcome, healing and reviving in the midst of pain and suffering. Financial blessing, anybody can have it. Listen, anyone who is willing to listen, anyone who is willing to follow the path of life, anyone who is willing to lay aside their own understanding and acknowledgement of God's understanding. You know the verse, because it's probably on your coffee cup at home, but it says this. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Listen to this. And do not lean on your own understanding. Now listen, you can use your understanding. But dear heaven, do not lean on it. Do not lean on it. 
Do not set the compass of your life on what you know, what you feel, and what you understand. Hear the words of wisdom. He says, he says son, trust in the Lord. Trust that when you don't understand... And when you're making a stand in the midst of a corrupt generation and it feels like everything else says that you're wrong, trust in the Lord and do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways, somebody say in all your ways, in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. He says, be not wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord, have reverence for God and turn away from evil. For it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. That word flesh there, it's a reference to the navel, which is the umbilical cord in the Hebrew. And it compares the trust of relationship with God to an infant that receives everything that it needs from its mother's umbilical cord. I listened to a podcast the other day that was talking about how, how a baby transfers from breathing in the womb to breathing outside the womb. And here's the answer. The reason the baby doesn't have to breathe inside the womb is because mama is breathing for it. The lungs clean the blood, but it doesn't even have to clean its own blood. It's cleansed by the connection. And that's, that's what scripture is saying to us. It's saying that when we trust in God, that we are connected with something that's bigger than us. Something that is greater than us. And we don't have to rely on our own strength or on our own understanding or on our own ability. We don't have to do that. But when we're connected, our problems aren't our problems to solve. That's a good news. Our struggles are not, not ours to overcome alone. But we are connected. When we trust God with all our hearts and we do not lean on the understanding, He directs. Listen, it says, in all thy ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct thy path. He'll direct your path. You know what my desire is and why I'm teaching this? Is there's a renewed desire in my life that God, I don't want to make any decision. I don't want to make any decision that isn't in alignment with what you have spoken and what you desire from me. I don't want to do anything, God, on my own understanding. God, I don't want to be dismissive of a single precept or principle that you've given me for my life and for my family. God, I don't, I don't, want, to miss, I don't want to miss the blessings that can be found by doing it God's way. And that's the key is as long as we're doing it our way, we miss the blessings. But he said you can have all of the divine direction that you want if you'll simply trust the Lord and acknowledge him in all of your ways. Stand with me. It says this, I was riding home yesterday. I didn't know I'd be, be speaking. I didn't know we were having church. I was riding home from uh, Waco yesterday. And out of the blue, God dropped this verse in my heart. In all thy ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct thy path. And the Lord spoke to me and said this, the reason that some people can't find my direction for their life is because there's an area they're not acknowledging me in. There's an area or a pocket of life where they've said, God, I got this, this is mine, I'm going to do it this way. And if you're struggling to hear the voice of God, if you're listening online and you're struggling to hear the voice of God, I believe this is a word of God for somebody, for an individual, that the area that you're not acknowledging God is what is holding you back from receiving the direction that you need. It's so beautiful when you really see it. What God is just saying is he's saying, trust me. 
You don't have to understand it all. Just trust me. Just trust me. Just live your life in acknowledgement. Do you have to be perfect? No, you never will be. You will mess up and you will fail. But let me tell you something. You can mess up and fail and still be acknowledging God and saying, God, I want to live your way. How many of you have that desire tonight? Let's just pray. I feel the Holy Ghost in this room right now. Lord, God, you've given this word, Lord. You laid it on me. God, it, 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 I believe that you had, have, have spoken here for a purpose, God. I believe that somebody is about to find freedom in their life. Somebody is about to find hope in their life. Somebody's about to have a breakthrough when they lay down their will for yours. God, I believe that somebody right now that is listening online is going to have a breakthrough in their life because they have been resisting your word and your will. But Lord, in the measure that we lay our own understanding down, that's the measure that you sweep in with all the blessings that we never could imagine, God. God, in our finances, Lord, we want to acknowledge you. God, in our family, Lord, we want to acknowledge you. God, in our prayer life, and our faith walk. We want to acknowledge you. And Lord, we, we trust that if we will acknowledge you, you will direct our path. God, you'll determine the outcome. You'll make a way where there seemeth to be no way. God, you'll do what you always intended and planned for us to do. And so God, we want to trust you tonight in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. If you believe that, would you say amen?